Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroth, president of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Peter Lyle, Group Director of Strategy of Fifth Ring. Fifth Ring is a marketing communications company, which today we call, uh, the lingo is Marcoms. So Fifth Ring is a Marcoms company with locations in the Americas, Europe, and Asia. Their ultra simple message, we help B2B companies sell more stuff and build better brands. And at the essence, I can't think of a clearer message to be out there for B2B companies. I'm pleased to have Peter join me today to discuss what I believe is a true blind spot in M&A, which is marketing, brands, and cultural integration challenges, pre- and post-acquisition. Peter, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me today. Patrick, thank you very much for your kind invitation. It's a pleasure to join you. Now, Peter, before we get into fifth ring and talking about this blind spot for M&A integration, why don't we set the table for our audience? Tell us about you. What got you to this point in your career? Well, it's, uh, it's quite a long story. I have been in marketing services since about uh, 1980, uh, when I graduated from Edinburgh University. I, I started life wanting to be a journalist, but couldn't find a job. So uh, as a writer, I worked my way through advertising agencies in London. And eventually, with a few people, we set up our own agency. And actually, an early theme that came through for me was at a certain level, agencies are not considered on a par with professional services companies. They're, they're nice people to be around, but when you've got really big, important decisions to make, that they can wait. Um, so slightly tempered by that, I went off to Henley Business School to do an MBA, uh, which I did in the 90s. Um, and then I came back to Aberdeen, where I'm from, Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland, and um, eventually joined an agency here which, as you say, has representation around the world. And uh, that was really one of the attractions for me um, was the international. And in fact, when I worked in London, I kind of walked to clients. Uh, but now, well, not now, of course, because of COVID, but traditionally I would be flying all over the place to service client needs. Armed with uh, an MBA and an advertising agency background, I did a stint in management consultancy as well in a firm just outside Oxford. And I've now been at Fifth Ring for about 15 years, um, shareholder and director. And I think uh, particularly interesting from for this perspective of this audience, our business was acquired in 2016 by a private family business media company in the northeast of Scotland. So I know what it's like to be as a, an observer and a participant. Um, and I, I think that gives an extra insight to the topic. Well, that's that's something, Peter. The uh, helpful thing is, is you've been on both sides of the negotiating table. So I, you've walked in everyone's shoes. So there's a great to have your perspective on this. Fifth ring. Tell me about that. What is it? What does it do? And I think the best way to kind of uh, describe your firm is, and I ask this to a lot of my guests, is how did you come up with the name? I mean, unlike unlike well, firms and insurance firms, most of them they just name them after the founders' last names, which is really boring. There's there's no creativity there. So, uh, go ahead, give us a story about Fifth Ring. Well, we certainly ought to have uh, some creativity about that, since that's what we sell. Um, I wasn't there at the time. Uh, the business was 
set up in 1991. I joined in 2005, uh, but the two individuals, one of whom is CEO today, Ian Ord, and the previous owner, Cliff Collier, um, they came up with the name, or it's classic agency, founded in a kitchen table scenario. Um, Ian was um, very experienced in the highly competitive uh, individual in martial arts, martial arts, sorry. And um, in that sphere, there is a book by a gentleman called Mayamoto Musashi. It's called The Book of Five Rings. Uh, it, it, it is worth it, a read in its, its own right. Yes, it's about martial arts, but there are lessons in there for general living. Uh, discipline is part of that, but, but also indeed for, for management as well. And there are five books, um, Ground, Wind, Fire, and Water. And, and you might say that they are equated maybe to the left brain side of one psyche, which is the, the, the organized things that you have to do. You have to have a sharp knife. You have to know your competition. You have to be prepared. You have to be properly fed and watered. The, the, these are the things that any martial arts exponent, any businessman, any human being has, has to have the basics in place. But then there's the fifth book, um, which is called The Void. And this is about intuition and flair and imagination and, and perhaps going against the trend and, and perhaps putting to, to, to one side all the sensible things to do and taking a flyer. Um, so Ian and Cliff decided it's the fifth book that matters. Uh, it's The Void, um, hence Fifth Ring. So that gives you a bit of insight about where the name came from. In terms of what we do, um, and we'll come back to your comment on building brands and selling stuff later, but um, we were Scotland's first integrated marketing communications agency, which means that instead of just being a creative agency or a media buying agency or a strategy or planning or digital, we actually have all the services in-house, which was a first. So I, I run the consultancy bit, but the front end piece in terms of establishing at a high level what businesses want to do. And then in-house, we have designers, we have writers, we have digital experts, we have PR people who can take an idea and then distribute it through all the various channels. And, and that service uh, of having the integrated offering um, doesn't appeal to everybody. We, we do sell bits of it for those that just want bits of it. But uh, not only can we deliver it locally, but we can deliver it regionally and internationally. And, and that's what gives us our edge. And the second thing, and, and the significant thing, is as knowing what you do, is doing it selectively. And we set out our stall very early on to focus on the energy sector, uh, Aberdeen being an oil and gas center, but also our bases in Houston and Texas, Singapore, Southeast Asia. We were in Dubai. We, we, we moved out of Dubai. We just found it too difficult a place to do business. But we have a discrete offering for a select marketplace. Uh, a marketplace, it has to be said, that goes through peaks and troughs. And we've followed that ourselves as well. Um, but when it's up, it's up. When it's down, then a diversified portfolio is essential. And, and so we do move outside the energy space at times as well. Let's talk about with the, the marketing communications and, and the consultancy services, because this is where we can touch on the, uh, the blind spot that, that I saw, because direct your services toward mergers and acquisitions and that activity, where you are engaged by companies that are looking to buy and what you provide, because there are all types of service providers out there that are providing tangible 
measurable items, the valuation, accounting services, compliance services, you know, legal services, all of those things out there. And on paper, all of those services added up could make a deal look really good on paper. And yet the best deal on paper with hundreds of millions of dollars at stake doesn't work. And this is, you know, where you come in. So let's talk about that, those types of services that you do. Yes, well, and it is fascinating. And, and to some extent, it's by happenstance. But we are very experienced in the M&A field, primarily because the energy industry, and by that I'm fundamentally talking about upstream oil and gas, is the sector that spends a lot of time buying and selling companies. Um, and we have benefited from that because, of course, as they buy and sell companies, so they buy and sell brands. And what is fascinating about this, and, and I've yet to get a great explanation from the financiers, is they will pay a premium price for a brand. And yet, when you quiz them and say, so how are we going to manage that brand? Or how are we going to look after it? How are we going to care for it? How are we going to nurture it? How are we going to look after the people that created it? it it's almost dismissed as, hang on a sec, don't worry about that. We've got the numbers to worry about. So there is this fascinating dichotomy between paying a premium for something. Um, I, I'll give you a little in, insight to this. We, we rebranded an organization, a global organization, uh, based out of Southeast Asia many years ago. And there were quite a few skeptics in the audience about the whole role of marketing communications within this m this within this transaction. And they even to the point of saying the brand isn't important, let's not worry about that right now. And I did a little experiment. I asked everybody to put up their hands if they had chosen their wristwatch because of the brand. And there were about 50 or 60 people in the room, and they all had. And I asked them if they'd chosen their car because of the brand, and they all had. And this is a mix of financiers and engineers. And then I asked them about their clothing, what kind of suits were being worn, and they were all branded suits. And so actually, as human beings, these people were very seriously brand savvy. They wouldn't be seen dead in a Skoda when they could actually have an Audi. They had to have a Gucci suit. Most of them are wearing Omega watches, but they couldn't quite transition this thought, this appeal, this attraction of a brand from the consumer environment to the B2B environment, which is where they earn their living on a day-to-day basis. But once we were able to convince them that that's where it actually matters as much, then we got some real advocates and supporters to the process. So there is the environment in which we operate. The services that we provide, therefore, are, and usually it's after the event, and we'll come on to that, why it should be before the event later. But after the event, people say, well, we've now got an extra half a dozen brands in our portfolio. How should we manage them? Some actually compete with brands we've already got. Don't quite know how that happened. What should we do about that? Um, we have several stories to tell, the old story, the new story, a story for our staff, a story for our customers, a story for our suppliers. How should we evolve that story? How should we tell it? Um, so this idea of coming to the event afterwards is always fascinating for us because we would then start asking questions such as, so when you started thinking about this deal, what sort of story did you have in mind? And quite often it is, well, we weren't really thinking about that. We were just thinking about doing the deal. Fine spots. Yeah. And it's like, well, wasn't there a strategy which said we need 
market expansion or we need to kill a competitor or we need market penetration or we need a new technology or we need that uh, hotspot of technological or inno innovation wasn't there something yeah 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 we, we yes there was okay can you articulate it simply um no but we've got a 200 page due diligence document as to why we're going to increase market share in kazakhstan or wherever it happens to be so that this is the fascinating bit we then have to pick up the pieces they are there the pieces um we have to pick them up and say so you did this because, 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 you saw an opportunity here, there's a new audience, there's an expanded audience, perhaps you can bring more products to your existing customers, whatever it happens to be, we get it now, okay, there is a rationale there, right, we will help you articulate that story into something meaningful. Um, so that, that, that's a good case scenario for us, it's not the perfect one, because the perfect one we'd like to be in before the deal is made, advising people saying, well, if you're going to buy that brand, you realize you're going to complicate your existing story. You're going to actually have complications within your brand portfolio. Uh, again, I'm sure we'll come on to that later. But that, that, that gives you an insight of, of the, the role that we play. And, and of course, just to, to supplement that, we have to be perceived as peers at this point because we might be giving some pretty strong not admonishments, but pretty strong advice to the clients, which is, you know you've created a problem for yourself here, don't you? Um, and, and, and we do it with a smile, and, and we, you know, we're advisors at the end of the day, and they can choose to ignore our advice, of course. But it, it's this idea of, of, of taking the raw bits, which you might have expected to be better thought through, and then turning them into an articulate, compelling, interesting story, and then disseminating that story. Um, and just, just to add to that, Patrick, an interesting bit is quite often you get a sense they want to tell the world first, but actually they forget to tell their own people. That's and, and it is, and, and it seems like the obvious thing, but we stress in B2B marketing communications activity, it has to be from the inside out. And we learned this from one particular major international oil field services company that was represented in 46 companies. It had 26,000 people working for it when we did this project. And the client said, you know what, we have about 170 clients around the world that we're interested in. And we have 26,000 people. So let's make sure that we use our army of people to tell our customers our new story rather than going straight to the market, putting out press releases, whatever it happens to be. So that's, um, that, that gives you a bit of an insight in the role we play and the timing in the, in, the, in the process. From our prior conversation, you had a great um, analogy where you were talking about how most of the parties you deal with were 90% engineers or very uh, objective, tangible uh, decision makers and so forth. Yes. However, most of their decisions, they don't make on an objective basis. They make it from instinct. Let's talk about that real quick. Yes, uh, it, it is nice. And it, it used to irritate me, but now it, I actually find it quite entertaining. Um, but, but as you say, in the oil and gas space, um, the concept of having a marketing department is relatively new. Um, so, and, and even if it, it's well established, it's probably populated with engineers by, by training. And certainly the C-suite individuals 
always the CEO has probably got a, a strong engineering background. And they take a meticulous and analytical and you know, very thorough view of everything that comes across their desk. Um, but if we put a creative piece of work, an advertising campaign or a design of a new website or whatever, and say, this is what you should do because, and we will base it on the data and the analysis and the discovery work that we've done, we may get feedback, which is, well, I don't like it. Why? Well, I don't like red. Okay, well, <laughs> that's fascinating, but it's irrelevant. So we've had to find a way of, uh, of getting around this, and, and it's okay. Um, and, we, and we do it with a smile, and, and, and the clients do. But you're right, that there is this sense that somehow when it gets into that creative space, the typical persona evaporates, and this somewhat more flighty and uh, individual with uh, personality and emotions uh, comes comes to the fore, and and that's fine. But but it is it did, it did take a bit of getting used to that's for sure. Well, I think you're familiar with that, and you realize and appreciate that people are going to act, particularly when they're stepping out of their comfort zone. They're going to be acting on instinct, and exactly. you anticipate that, and you bring that through, which I think is always helpful, and that's what you know, professionals do now is they realize the limitations of, of what they know and don't know, and they'll, they'll reach out to other places. And that just helps them, you know, lower the learning curve uh, and, and flatten that out so they can get to, you know, proper execution. Again, I think this is, it sounds a little simplistic, but when you consider there are hundreds of millions of dollars at stake uh, that you want to get it right. And, we're on the insurance side and we want to make sure that things, you know, go well. Otherwise we're going to have to pay a big, big claim check. If, if some of these uh, issues are thought about and anticipated, then you're going to have a much more successful outcome uh, down the road. And that, that's good for all parties. Uh, Peter, yeah. can you give us an example? You had mentioned one where, uh, you know, the very large uh, uh, energy company, but, Give, give us a quick little case study on what you did with, with a particular client. Yeah, I, I think um, the dealing with legacy issues brought about by mergers and acquisitions is a very typical. Oh, that's um, universal. Yeah. And it's often stimulated by leadership change, I would say, or, or ownership, um, new investors, whatever it is. And they will look at a company which has grown up probably quite successfully by buying competitors, by buying, by expanding its portfolio. And it wakes up one morning and goes, this is a bag of nails. We can't explain this to anybody. We've got this business, we've got that business, we've got the same service being offered in different territories, but with different names. We, we, we need to sort this out <clears throat> so that anybody can understand it quickly. Um, whether that's a potential future investor, whether that is a potential new recruit, new member of staff. Um, whether it is a new customer, multiple stakeholders, of course. So we, we did a major exercise for a global exercise, again, for, for an oil and gas uh, contracting business who had got themselves into this exact state. Uh, they'd been involved in many joint ventures over the years. They had allowed their local marketeers to be quite flexible with how the actual brand was presented. When they started dipping their toes into renewables and they had a wind farm operation, uh, the actual logo appeared in green at one place. Mm. So, so there was, and this is a major corporate. And, and so um, 
it's it's a mess. So our job is is to tidy it up. And of course, with the mess, often comes internal territorial battles. You know, I exist. I have power because I have a logo. You know, well, hang on a sec. You you are a member of this organization. You may be a head of a division, but it's it's the corporate brand that matters. So you have to deal with that sense of taking away from people. So you, you've got a number of sides on it. You, you've got to do this quite subtly. You've got to engage people. We do a lot of interviews, a lot of focus groups. How did the situation get to be as it is? What was the rationale? What was the justification? How would you envisage change? Because what, what we're going to have ultimately is probably what we call a monolithic brand, which is just the brand and, and no subsidiary names, no house of brands. And, and so it's involving, it's collaborative. Uh, in this particular case of this company, they were very good at that. Uh, I think we did 70 interviews around the world. We did um, two quantitative surveys of all 26,000 individuals. So you really get a sense of how something happened, why it happened, what people would think about in terms of options for change. Then it is our job as creative people to say to the client, this is what good looks like. In order to meet your corporate vision and your corporate strategy, you now have to present your brand in this way, in our belief as experts in the field. That is always subject to some debate, you know, whether it's logo style, whether it's colorways, whether it's visual presentation, whatever it is, people will have a view. And, and that's fine. And we accept that. That's fairly standard process. Enjoy, you know, good success doing that. And then you get to a point of decision, which is, yes, we are going to structure our brand portfolio in this way. We're not going to have a mess anymore. It's going to be clean, neat, tidy, structured. You can see at a glance that this company is endorsed by the holding company, for example. Or you, you can see at a glance because of the way the colors look that we're all part of the same family. There is a semblance, that, that, that there is a, a unity. And it could be in all sorts of different ways. That's all relatively straightforward. Um, the next bit comes the implementation. And, and, and this is, again, hard. Um, because and in this particular instance, I remember when we completed the implementation, the big boss said, but what about the ships? Weren't we going to repaint them? Uh, and we said, boss, we decided as you had 26 ships in your fleet, it might be too big a deal to repaint them. And his response was, oh, no, maybe it would have been nice to repaint them. So, <laughs> so you never quite know. But anyway, uh, getting back to the point of implementation, there's the hard side of it, which is uniforms, signage, anything that represents the organization can be rebranded physically relatively straightforward. Um, you can choose to do it overnight and spend a lot of time and money on it, or you can take a, more of a replacement point of view. Um, the hard bit is, of course, the culture bit. Those people that were in an acquired business that grew up being company X, and now they're company Y, they have loyalties to what? Where, where does their corporate stories come from? Where, where does their understanding of what matters, what gets them out of bed in the morning? They're suddenly being asked to package that away, forget about it, and think about this and be really focused on something new and different. 
And of course, that, um, that's hard. We talk about change quite glibly, I think, as everybody hates change, uh, which we actually fundamentally disagree with that. Uh, a lot of people are crying out for change, but what they don't like is bad change. So, or loosely implemented or half done change. So you have to have a really thorough way of internally managing the messaging, going back to the focus groups, going back to the people you spoke to, say, this is how it's going to be. This is why. We need your help to share this story. We need your help as brand ambassadors, as advocates, as powerful, influential people to take the story. And that cultural bit, it's the bit that never gets discussed in the deal making, um, at least it may do, but not in my experience. Um, it gets, it's the bit where the people from different organizations are brought close together and expected to work together. They don't even know each other and they're expected to represent in an organization and work together. And so it, it's fundamentally, it's hard and it takes time and it has to be done in a very clear and concise way of people speaking to people and explaining and explaining and making no assumptions. Um, and the best example that we've seen of the clients that we've had over the years is a business that acquired businesses regularly and they had it so slick. They actually had an implementation team. It was made up usually of about eight or 10 work streams from the basics of integrating ERP systems to you know, the, the softer skills bit of cultural integration. And if, if if there was a lesson that we've learned and which I would share it is that's the way to do it. <laughs> Be absolutely clear that if you want someone on the front line to represent your brand, you, you better tell them what you want to do rather than just sending them an email and hope they pick it up. Um, and, the, and just to conclude on this piece, the message that we've said to clients over the years is if you want someone on the front line to know your new story, to understand your brand, you got to tell them seven times in seven different ways. So the cultural integration is one of those blind spots. And a lot of people keep thinking about that as, as an HR issue and where you have clashes of cultures where you may have a, you know, a formally dressed office versus somebody that a firm that has everybody's in casual clothes and so forth. And that's not just the dress. It's, it's just the people were had a mission to accomplish and they believed in their firm now all of a sudden that mission has changed from an acquisition and so it's you know getting them to buy in because the most i think the most important thing with business uh is it's not the shareholders of a company you know for the publicly traded companies it, it's not that it's first of all your people and then secondly it's taking care of the customs the people that are buying your goods and services and if they're not taken care of that that's going to kill you and the best way, fastest way to do that is take, you know, get your people on mission, take very good care of them so that they have no fear and then they move forward and take care of your customers. And then your customers end up buying more. It's simple, but it's not easy. You know, it's one of those things for coming together. But one of the things you mentioned that I definitely want to touch on is, is giving a message, a simple message to the people. You have to tell them seven times, okay, in seven different yeah. occasions. Messaging, I think what you guys do is essential. And I think it's, it's a great value add that you have where you make it ultra simple. And I'll, I'll read back again what, what yours is uh, for Fifth Ring. We help B2B companies sell more stuff and build better brands. No wasted words there. 
Very simple concept, direct, everything. Okay. Talk about not, not only just being creative, but why it's so essential to have not just a message, but a simple message. Well, it's a great, it's a great question, um, Patrick. And I'll, I'll give you two sides of this. Uh, one from the front line. You know, I, I come from the MBA background. I read all the books. I read Harvard Business Review. I, I, I speak the highfalutin language of the consultant. And I can tell you the difference between a vision and a mission and a strategy um, and a value proposition. And I can actually provide words for all these different things. And so can all my colleagues. And, and I think what is, it was a real eye-opener for me is we'd taken a logistics firm, which specializes in oil and gas, needless to say, through a rebrand, given them a new story. We'd done the cultural integration. We actually used actors to do role play and scenarios, which was a great way of getting that cultural piece aligned. And um, as it happened, they they ran an event where um, there were prizes given. And as a supplier to them, we were encouraged to give us a a prize and we give them a prize of a a day out playing golf. And I took three guys from the company to play golf. And these were pretty frontline individuals. They, They worked on the docks, shipping you know crane operators loading ships moving stuff offshore and i asked them as we were playing golf so what do you make of the new vision oh, i don't know about that well, what about the mission uh, yeah i saw i saw a video about that there, there was a book wasn't there yeah i don't, don't know anything about that so what do, what do you think of the three word strategic principle that we came up with or what, what was that i said it was called trust well placed oh i like that well, yeah, why do you like it? Well, that's what I do. My job is to, uh, people trust me and I make sure that things are, are placed in the right place and then they go on the boat and um, and then they get to the rig and that's, you know, yeah, I, I can go with that. And, and so we were able to succinctly, in three words, articulate the entire strategy for this organization, trust well-placed. And not, it's not an easy thing to do. And you can go online and, you will find tag tagline, you know, stimulators that can <laughs> simulators that can create these things for you. Um, but if you can get it down to three words, and for fifth ring, you know, our equivalent of that is making thinking visible. You know, that, that's what we that's what we do. It's, it's like, okay, what does that mean? Well, people do a lot of thinking, but it's not much worth anything if it's not made visible. So this idea of paring it down to its absolute basics. Um, and, and, and we look to others, you know, there's the, the famous Nike, just do it. And, 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 and that's kind of one of the benchmarks out there. And you think, well, okay, it takes a hell of a lot of creativity and imagination to come up with these things, but it has to be linked back to the strategy. So that, that's why we think simple messages really resonate with staff. But the other area, which is pertinent to what we're talking about today, of course, is M&A. And the investor community, God bless them, doesn't have much time. So it, it, it believes it has to understand instantly what a business is all about to make some kind of rapid decision as to whether or not this is an interesting opportunity. Um, I actually think that's a little bit unfair. And of course, they do have to do the due diligence and look under the hood and test it and poke it and all the rest of it. But if you can articulate quickly and simply what your business is about, you've got a far better chance of resonating with the different stakeholder audiences that you have. 
And so the history behind building brands and selling stuff from a fifth ring point of view was that we were just using this internally. You know, guys, what do we do on a Monday morning? We get up, we go build some brands and we go sell some stuff on behalf of our clients. And we started using it in a quite lax way in front of clients. And they quite liked it. They said, well, yeah, yeah, could you do that for us? And we said, well, well yeah, but that's, it's a bit casual, isn't it? Uh, casual, yes, but we understand what it means. So then we started using it externally. Then it found its way onto its website. And, and now we're even thinking about what does it mean for job titles and roles and other things, fundamentals within the organization. Could we have a head of selling stuff? You know, would that be the right thing to do? So it is permeated right into our business because, as you rightly say, it matters to customers. They, they get it. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, from a marketing communications point of view, we've never been in a better place to help people sell stuff because we have the strategies, we have the tools, but above all, we now have the technology to micro-target, to demonstrate return on investment, to show through all sorts of new, modern, sophisticated marketing automation ways that if you identify the right people, if you approach them in the right way, you can actually turn them into a qualified lead. And and that's why selling stuff is so significant in B2B. Um, I would say as a footnote to that, there is still a huge place for personal relationship-orientated selling. Um, And some of the contracts that our customers are selling are massive, you know, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. So they're not going to do that online, but they can find new audiences, new opportunities online. Then, of course, they bring in the experts, the technical experts, the strategic experts to convince that particular prospect of why it's a good idea. But we would like to take this even further and link our remuneration to our performance. So getting away from fees and into, well, we produce that amount of reward for that business. We want a share of that reward. Um, and, 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 and that, we think, is, is the way our industry will go. Rather than it, trying- it, it removes the risk, uh, at, le- at least mitigates the risk, because that's always the concern when you're making a spend on something as particularly creative uh, marketing type expenditures, because there are too many stories out there of decisions made spend a lot of dollars and didn't get the return that that they had hoped and i think if you link in a success uh model uh there then then you're you're both working together so i i think that's a that's a great trend peter what what do you see in the m a trends wise from your perspective how do you think things are going or what do you see from from where you are i think the interesting arena for us um and this week has been christened bp week um because of the amount of uh, news coverage that they're getting. But we're in what we call the energy transition now. The reliance on hydrocarbons is changing. The growth of renewables is obviously here and now. Have we reached a tipping point? No. Will we stop using oil and gas tomorrow? No. Um, But from an M&A point of view, what, what we're interested in is what will happen to those smaller businesses that are currently in the renewable space? Um, how will the big oil companies, the big oil operators manage to bring them into their portfolios? And we've already seen a, a deal done with uh, uh, BP buying some of uh, Equinor's renewables assets in, in the last few weeks. 
so so things are happening so the under uh, re recognized brands in the renewable space at the moment because it's still a relatively new arena what role will they play as they add value to the portfolio of established oil and gas companies going forward will, will, will they add anything uh, will their brands have value as they transition over or will they fundamentally just disappear that that's going to be really interesting to see for us one thing about fifth ring you've developed your reputation and your experiences in that sector, that oil and gas sector. And I think it's helpful that you were very, very focused on an industry, but you're not locked into that. Certainly you can get into other industries as well. I, I think what's significant for uh, credibility wise for Fifth Ring is you're working with deals that were in the billions of dollars. And you had, you had organizations with billion-dollar checks being written, they trusted you. So if they can trust you, a lot of other industries should have no problem with your credibility on delivering on, on, on a promise. Talk about who your ideal client is and what, what Fifth Ring is looking for. Well, that's, um, that's a great question. And we discuss it a lot our, ourselves, of course, in terms of who that uh, actual ideal individual would be um and i say individual quite deliberately because we we like to deal with the ceo um so that means it's not going to be a massive massive organization it'll be big this individual will be quite enlightened they will have an open mind to marketing marketing communications and branding they probably have some experience of it already uh, they won't consider themselves an expert in the field but they will know that it's important. It's probably an international organization. It's probably going through a bit of flux and a bit of change. Um, probably got some maybe new investment, maybe even a new leadership team. Uh, it's, it's ambitious. Uh, it's in a hurry. It's not afraid to be challenged. It's quite demanding. It realizes the value of people. It doesn't look at our staff in any particular way, just because they happen to be young or ethnic or female or whatever it is, they've got a very open, transparent view of, of diversity. You know, I, that, that's really, I know it's quite topical and I could be accused of just saying this, but actually I'm not. You know, it, it's quite normal for us to employ uh, young people. And so we want senior people in the client side to take these young people seriously. So, that, so that's important to us. Um, that, that's another thing in the ideal client. I think that they also have to be willing to take a little bit of risk. And when we come to them with an idea and we say, you know, you might want to think twice about this, but it, it really could work. And they go, oh, go on then. You know, what's the downside? What's the worst that could happen? Um, so we, we quite like that. And also, ultimately, um, and, and I don't want this to be taken the wrong way, but there should be an element of fun about this. You know, the, the last eight months has not been particularly fun worldwide for the obvious reason. But actually, if we collaboratively can have a bit of fun creating a new position for a, a brand, creating a new story, seeing it engage people, seeing it drive new business, and, and they can look back on it later and say, you know, that, we enjoyed doing that. Why wouldn't that be something that you would actually look for in the perfect client, you know? Well, I just think that, you know, as a father of two, 
Uh, you never get your kids working harder or spending more energy other than when, than when they're having fun. When they're having fun, it's unlimited, the type of stuff. So I, I think that's a great element out there uh, that, that could be there. And with uh, while well, you're, you're based in Scotland, uh, Fifth Ring has, has a U.S. presence, uh, multiple offices with a, a headquarters in Houston. And you're eligible for companies and firms worldwide, so across the United States, correct? It is. And I personally have done a lot of work in Houston. I know it's a cliche, but cliches usually have a bit of truth in fact. And that's why they become cliches. Um, but there is an entrepreneurialism that we notice amongst the, the techs and um, clientele that we work with. They're is a willingness to give things a try. Um, they like process, of course, um, but there is a sense, uh, yeah, okay, come on, let's see what we can do. Um, and I'm not saying that's not the case with our European business or our Southeast Asian business either, but that there is a sense, it's, there's an informality as well, um, which we like. It's often quite difficult at first meeting to work out who the big boss is. You know, the dress code can seldom be a giveaway. You know, um, there is a sense of not necessarily equality, but collaboration and entrepreneurialism. Funnily enough, in the M&A space, we we, um, have seen plenty of successes and failures in in Houston. Um, But that doesn't stop people trying. (laughs) And and that being part of that, business environment is stimulating to say the least well peter how can how can our audience members many are in houston but they're also across the the country right now how, how can our audience members and our listeners find you we have of course a website um, which is constantly evolving and changing a very simple email address is fifthring.com f-i-f-t-h-r-i-n-g.com um, and you will find a lot of good stories and information and background about us there. Um, if you want to speak to me, uh, I have a very simple email address, which is peter at fifthring.com. Um, we have a simple recruitment policy, which is only one Peter. So um, that's me. There you um, go. We, I think we have lots, we had lots of Stephanies for a while. Um, so we do actually use surnames as well in our email addresses, but uh, there, there's only, there's only one Peter. I um, think that th- this is a fascinating topic. It, it's, it, it really has meaning that you, you, absolutely spot on of you, Patrick, to, to realize that it's, it's a talking point. I know deep down that the investor community, the financiers, the bankers, the lawyers, they know this. They just occasionally need to be reminded that the cultural aspect, the branding aspect, the communications aspect really is significant. And if there was one thing that people did want to get in touch to, to talk about, because we know that this tangible, intangible dichotomy is something that matters, we, we actually created a dashboard to try and put some of these softer, intangible things into the mix in the pre-deal phase. And, and so we've got some insight and ideas on that that could be helpful to try and say to people, there, there is a metric by which you can test culture, see how it changes, and, 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 and turn it the way that you want it to be over time. So that might be a topic for, for further con- conversation. That would be fantastic. I, I think I appreciate you being here today because when you think about the M&A community and it's not shrinking, you've got thousands of private equity firms. 
You have thousands of family offices. You have thousands of strategic acquirers out there. And now we have the emergence of SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies, and they are doing IPOs. At least 20 to 30 new SPACs are coming the last four months consecutively. So we have all these buyers out there. Okay. How is a target to distinguish other than price and, 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 and money? How are they going to distinguish one buyer from another? And I think that if you really wanted to separate your organization from the rest of the pack, you come in with something that's different. And I think this is why if you can address blind spots and culture, I think is really big, but this puts the dollars and, and the motivation with the culture there with the integration, the brand, the, the, the target is always going to want their legacy to, to move forward or to be elevated. And that's something you deliver. And I think that, you know, particularly for the SPAC market, which we, we uh, can embrace immediately, this is a great way to differentiate yourself from a lot of the other others out there. And so I really appreciate what you have. And I recommend anybody to, to reach out to Peter and his team. They've got a fabulous story. And what's more importantly, they're going to help you create your story, which will close deals that will save you tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's, it's a pleasure for me to be able to provide that kind of thing to the community. So Peter, thank you very much for that. Great. Well, that's kind of you, Patrick. And I would just conclude to, to add to that point that you made. We saw this opportunity quite vividly about a year ago. So we are, we are now working with a management consultancy firm in Houston, a company called Carnwright, jointly. So they help businesses through the hard bit of the M&A, the advice, the transition, the transformation, the implementation. And then we support in parallel on the communication and brand matters that go with it. And so we're, we're working under the, the joint title of Walk the Talk. They, they can't write, help you do the walking. We fifth ring, help you do the talking. Um, it's, it's, it's resonating pretty well, but it, it does to the heart of what you just said about finding a point of differentiation. Well, thank you very much, Peter. You got to find a three-word uh, three-word slogan for Rubicon next. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> we'll do our very best. Thank you, Patrick. 